0: Hey, Scott here. Thanks for listening to the Flyover Country podcast. Appreciate all the listeners and the Twitter interactions and the social media promotion and the five-star reviews. And we've uh, put together a nice little community for Flyover Country. And we want to keep doing it all throughout 2022. So as much as you can promote and rate and uh, keep, keep with us, we sincerely appreciate your engagement. One of the best guests I think that we've had so far is Eric Erickson. He's coming up today. I am so excited to present this interview with you. I've wanted to talk to Eric for a long time. We don't know each other well. We've interacted some uh, you know, in the conservative media ecosystem, but I find Eric Erickson uh, to be a really fascinating guy. Um, I follow his Substack. I subscribe to it, uh, ewerickson.substack.com, and I encourage you to do that as well. I follow him on Twitter, and oftentimes I find myself Uh, You know, when something's going on and I'm trying to sort out my own thoughts on what's happening, I sort of calibrate it uh, off of a few people. And Eric Erickson is certainly on that list. So Eric right now, flagship radio station in Atlanta, Georgia, 750 WSB. And he's also syndicating his radio show. He's on uh, 20 uh, stations around the country. He's got the Substack. Uh, He's got his Twitter feed. He really does produce a lot of content that I think is extremely informative to the conservative movement today. In this interview, he had some eye-opening things to say about Donald Trump and what Trump's future in the Republican Party should be. If you are interested in Georgia politics, the governor's race and the Senate race there, Brian Kemp, the governor, uh, and then uh, Raphael Warnock, the Democrat senator, we've got an interesting landscape in Georgia. Eric had some uh, very insightful commentary about that. We talked a little bit about the radio business and the post-Rush Limbaugh conservative radio landscape, uh, landscape which Eric is a big part of. And we talked about the conservative movement and where does the conservative movement stand today in the wake of Donald Trump having lost the presidency to Joe Biden. It is all coming up. Eric Erickson on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.
1: Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff.
0: All right. Thanks for being with us on the uh, Flyover Country podcast. Scott Jennings here. Appreciate uh, your listenership as always, and it's a great honor for me this week to have someone that I've admired from afar uh, for quite some time. We have communicated some uh, uh, via the internet. Uh, but, uh, I wanted to invite him because of how much I admire what he does and how important I think he is to conservative, uh, thought in the United States today. Eric Erickson, live from Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for being on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, I've really followed your career for a long time because I find myself gravitating to your arguments, uh, frequently and, and, uh, in my own work and in my own commentary jobs that I have. Uh, one of the first questions I asked myself was, well, where's Eric landing on this? Because I, I sometimes try to calibrate myself based on uh, based on where some smart people are. And, and you you make that list. Uh, and so I, I kind of wanted to start today uh, with you just about the, the sort of the state of the conservative movement uh, in the United States. I think you're one of the most important voices you've got people coming after you because of some of your views all the time. You had your Twitter account suspended uh, in 2021. Uh, you've obviously developed a thick skin for, for all of that. I was hoping maybe you could just reflect on where, where we think we are as conservatives in the United States, uh, where you think you are in an in a industry dominated by not conservatives, and give us some thoughts about uh, the future of the, of the Republican Party and the conservative movement over the next uh, couple of years.
1: Sure. And, and you know, first, I would like to thank you for noting my thick skin. It's not that I'm actually fat. It's that I've got such <laughs> thick skin. It just looks that way. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have actually put inordinate amount of thought in uh, this way more than I should. I've never really considered myself an intellectual, but on, on this this idea of where is the conservative movement. Uh, and I don't know that there is a conservative movement right now. Uh, it's kind of like when Rome collapsed, the, the bureaucratic appendages of Rome continued to function even after the Roman Empire really was gone. The bureaucrats didn't just give up overnight. Um, they, they were still trying to collect taxes and stuff. Uh, for the longest time as the Roman Empire had trouble, it was the bureaucracy that continued the empire and helped to get through the troubles. And then when the troubles finally brought an end to the western half of the empire, the bureaucracy still tried to function. In the name of something that no longer was. And I I think that's kind of what we see here with the conservative movement. Uh, What does the conservative movement stand for anymore? You know, it's one of those things I I get people all the time who they tell me, well, I don't think you're conservative. I've got a next door neighbor. He was my liberal law professor when I was in law school and, and occasionally now tells me that he thinks he's to the right of me. Uh, and a lot of what I'm finding is I, I really, I haven't changed in any position I can think of, uh, this significantly, but a lot of people define their conservatisms in terms of whether or not they supported Donald Trump. Right. And I don't view that as part of the conservative movement. Uh, I, I find, and, and it sounds arrogant and I don't mean it that way to say that a, a lot of people who tell me I'm not conservative or somewhat, I'm Like, where were you 10 years ago? Where were you five years ago? Where were you before Trump in the conservative movement? Um, I think the movement is having the the tough road the conservative movement has moving forward is a lot of the major conservative think tanks over time uh, were a place that Fortune 500 companies could give money and know that they would advocate sound corporate policy. Well, those corporations have essentially now figured out that Washington, if you put enough money in enough slots, uh, will reward you and punish your enemies. And the dynamics within conservatism are almost a corporatist versus anti-corporatist dynamic, Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the economics. Uh, The conservative movement is still largely socially conservative. Uh, It's the economic side and the national security side that are really discombobulated right now. Are we protectionist? Or are we expansive internationalists? I'm in the camp that if the United States doesn't want to be the world's policeman, there are a lot of other countries that would love to police the world, and we will be worse off if we let them. Uh, What about corporations? I One area where I have kind of evolved over time is I do think we need to be much more aggressive against major corporations and tech companies in particular Mm -hmm. uh, because their interests I'm always hesitant when a corporation views itself as pure as the driven snow and its motives to be honorable, when at the end of the day, they want to make a buck. And also, they're a bunch of social liberals who don't particularly like my values. So I think we've got to find that. Now, unfortunately, I think where the conservative movement is, is way to the extreme of burn them all down. There's not a lot of shade between uh, the anti-corporate left and the anti-corporate right right now, which is a big problem. Uh, so we're, we're essentially the conservative movement is wandering in the wilderness. Uh, a lot of the old guard decided to cash out, uh, and the new guys are squabbling with each other.
0: Let me go back to something you said about Trump sort of essentially defining a conservative based on their support or, or lack of support of Donald Trump. You, you, you went, you, you were, you were in some disparate places on Trump, uh, you know, during his time as I think a lot of us were, you know, I mean, excited that Hillary Clinton wasn't the president. Happy about his judicial appointments. Unhappy about his, you know, personal lifestyle and so on and so forth. And I think where I uh, come down on on the his impact on conservatism is that he's made it more performative and less uh, ideological. And so, if you have ideas, if you want to do these five things, well, that's fine. But but how performative were you today? And and the definition of being a conservative is more performative. I view this personally as corrosive uh, because. Uh, when everything is performative, uh, your my view is you're not going to like what you get <laughs> as results of the governing, you know, consequence of that. Um, where where are you on him today? I mean, I, I, I you ended up endorsing yeah. him for re-election, which was a big deal. I, I recall him touting it. And uh, right. where where are you on Donald Trump today? Uh,
1: I, I wish he would go away. Um, I, you know, I didn't support him in 2016. We I, and I still think character counts. Uh, In 2016, I I voted third party. And then in 2020, I thought, look, I voted third party. And in 2016, everyone told me Hillary would get elected. If I did, she didn't. Uh, At this point, though, the country really is going to choose between Democrat or Republican for all this talk about maybe it's time for third party the country is Democrat or Republican. So I'll go Republican. Don't care for him personally, but I like a lot of his policies, not all of his policies. And I'm, I'm friends with a lot of the people he wound up surrounding himself with. I didn't think he would. I really thought he would get in the White House and move to the left as he had been, a card carrying member of the Democratic Party, major Democratic donor who actually praised Planned Parenthood on the campaign trail in 2016. Uh, he didn't. Uh, good for him. But at this point, he needs to go away because too much of the party has made it about him, not about ideas. Uh, we're, we're not running on anything, and I don't know that we have to with Joe Biden and the Democrats, but we eventually will have power again, and we need to be able to use that power uh, other than scratching Donald Trump's itches. And I, I think he is corrosive to the party in that, to your point, he has he's really the first, first postmodern uh, Republican president, uh, presidential candidate, and by that I mean part of the hallmarks of postmodernism is performance. Uh, you can't just say I stand for X. Uh, you've got to go beat your chest, burn down everyone who doesn't believe in X, uh, and, and dance around to show that I really do truly believe this. And that's one of, one of the things the Republican Party is doing now is is it's not just that we say that we believe in something; we've got to show through performance theater that this is what we believe, and oftentimes. The performance we choose to engage in is discrediting. When you look on the right right now, and, and I don't mean this uh, offensively to anybody because I got a lot of friends who are committed to it, uh, the, the masculine argument uh, Josh Hawley and others are, are making that we need men to be men. I agree with them. But when you see that play out on the stage, you have a bunch of guys who think they need to pound chests with each other and and, and scream and be jackasses on social media. Uh, when you don't have to do that. Uh, The the way we express ourselves can be off-putting to a lot of people who really don't like the left. And I think this is kind of the core message that people on our side missed. In 2020, with the exception of Donald Trump, the American public rejected the left in large part because they did not like their performance. It's not that they didn't like a lot of their arguments per se, although they didn't like those either. They really hated the riots They hated the protests. They hated the doubling down on profanity and and vulgarization of politics from progressive politicians. So they went to the right across the board, local, state, federal level, except the presidency. And now people on the right are like, well, we need to behave like people on the left because they're so successful. I don't see a record of success in their behaviors that we should emulate.
0: Yeah. And and you certainly don't see it in, in Joe Biden's approval ratings today. You don't see it in the outlook for the midterm elections. I mean, there's no evidence that the country is pining for more uh, left-wing leadership. I do think there's evidence that there, there are people pining uh, to make America boring or normal again, at least in our politics, and that's what Glenn Youngkin proved in Virginia. I was wondering if you had paid close attention to that campaign like the rest of us, and do you also believe that, that this is a blueprint for what the Republicans should do in the future, or do you think uh, it worked in a unique case?
1: Uh, you know, I mixed on, on that last point of, is it a blueprint? Uh, it, it's a blueprint based on particular candidates, and it's hard to find those candidates. Uh, Youngkin proved to be a good candidate. And I got to tell you, early on, I was a little critical of Youngkin saying, this guy, isn't. he's not announcing any policies, he's not doing anything, he's, he's running a very cautious, careful campaign, but it actually wound up working. His campaign team knew what they were doing. They defined him uh, before McAuliffe could define him. Uh, and they defined him, frankly, as kind of a, a boring wonk. Uh, and it worked. Uh, people wanted that return to normalcy. They McAuliffe didn't realize people already knew him and didn't like him, and he couldn't tar and feather Yunkin as a Trump or anything else. So if we can find the right candidates, and if we can get those candidates with a good campaign team around them, not the grifters that have kind of pervaded Republican political space right now, then yes, I, I think it's a winning formula in purple states in particular. In, in states, I mean, frankly, in a Georgia, for example, uh, where Brian Kemp, believe it or not, I mean, people you never know from the national media are kind of running as the, as the boring, normal, competent steward uh, that he is. Now, there's a space out there to be filled. I, I do think, though, one of the problems that both sides have, and Republicans tend to have a worse track record than Democrats, is they go out and they find self-funders. And then the consulting class bleeds the self-funders dry, and they always collapse. Democrats seem to have a better track record at getting multimillionaires and billionaires elected than Republicans. Uh, and oftentimes, the Republican multimillionaires and billionaires, when you get to know them, they're really not that normal. Uh, so finding the right one who can be kind of normal and run does matter.
0: You brought up Brian Kemp, and I want to talk about Georgia in a few minutes uh, because I've, I've heard some of your statements about Kemp, and I know you have thoughts about Trump's engagement in. Georgia politics. But I, I, I want to just drill down on Trump briefly. So you wish he would exit, but do you believe he will? And and as a prognostication matter, do you think he's running for president or do you think he genuinely doesn't know yet?
1: Uh, I, I mm, what I've said all along to my radio listeners and in, in, in writing on Substack and the like is there's no reason for him to announce otherwise until after 2022, because the moment he does, people go looking for someone else and he wants to wage war and have influence in 2022. Now, should he sweep through 2022 and everyone he hates lose, then yeah, I, I think he's probably gonna run again. Uh if if he doesn't, uh and he's not able to pick off a Brian Kemp or or he does and Stacey Abrams gets elected, for example, uh then I know I don't think he is. And and my my belief, contrary to everyone else, and again, I I've, I've been wrong on Trump a lot, so take it for what it's worth, I don't think he actually runs in twenty twenty four in large part because he's Joe he'll be Joe Biden's age in 2024 uh, i i don't think he'll have the the stamina or the willingness and frankly there's so much of a legal incentive right now for everyone who hates him to do everything they can to stop him uh keep an eye on the case in fulton county where a grand jury continues to investigate charging him in georgia which trying to disrupt an election i i think uh th- th- there there's legal hell to pay for him should he continue to run just by virtue of how polarizing he is well,
0: well you're right in the middle of it there uh what do you think the grand jury is going to do? I mean, I, you know, you you go around and talk to people in politics and, and, you know, there's a group of people out there pining for him to be indicted for something. Right. You're a lawyer, you're in Georgia. What's, what's your, what's your view of what they'll end up doing with him?
1: Uh, you know, I, I honestly, I, I don't even want to speculate on this one too much because I, I don't know. Um, there is a lot of bad evidence there, his statements, the recordings, the ancillary evidence uh, there's a story actually in the Atlanta Journal today that uh, the DA is trying to examine his motive. What was his motive? Did he did he genuinely believe that uh, pe- people had lied to him and, and believed, it led him to believe stuff? Or was he just maliciously trying to take the election? They're getting into that. Uh, this is a new prosecutor in the state of Georgia who wants to establish her credibility and bona fides with the Democrats. At the same time, she's a new prosecutor. And I don't know that she wants to tackle trying to indict the former president of the United States in a Georgia superior court. I I don't see that happening. Um, I I would be actually surprised if he does get indicted out of this.
0: You know, I, I, I know people who want him indicted, and I also know people who think that if he gets indicted anywhere for anything, it only makes him stronger. It only yeah. increases the martyrdom and increases the prospect of him trying to vindicate himself by another campaign. So it uh, be fascinating to see what happens. Let's, uh, let's stay with Georgia for a minute uh, because I think two of the most consequential races in 2022 are happening in your home state. Uh, one is the governor's race. You have an incumbent governor, Brian Kemp, uh, who defeated Stacey Abrams. Uh, despite everyone's in the media's best efforts <laughs> last time around. Um, and now he's up for reelection. And so he's had to defeat the far left and now he's going to have to defeat uh, Donald Trump. Uh, you've had some pretty strong views about uh, Trump's meddling in this race. Give us a sense of where you think the governor's race stands uh, and, uh, and where you think Brian Kemp's headed in the new year.
1: Um. So I, I a couple of things. One, you know, I, I any campaign that is rushing out to do get news stories done around their internal polling, uh, their private internal polling is bad. And David Perdue is rushing out to flag his his internal polling to the AJC, saying, "Look, look, uh, I can I can beat Brian Kemp." That tells me that their private internal polling is not as good as their public internal polling. That the Kemp campaign has chosen not to talk about their internal polling, I actually take as a good sign um, that they don't feel like they need to wave it around and show CC we're actually ahead because, you know, you can manufacture a poll for an incumbent governor that shows that and they've chosen not to do that. Um, I honestly, I, I, will, I can put my hand on a Bible and I can tell you this in all sincerity, I know there are people who exist who say, yes, Brian Kemp should quit and David Perdue should be the nominee. But I have not found that person. I'm sure they exist. I have not found them. I do not know anyone from my church groups to the people I encounter on talk radio and the largest talk station in the nation out of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to anyone in my community, to any of their friends, to anyone on social media that I interact with on Facebook or Twitter. I can't find the person who says, yes, I'm supporting David Perdue. Um, usually you can find some group. I can't find them. And in conversations with friends of mine in politics, even among people who don't like Brian Kemp, even among Democrats, they can't find them. So they're clearly there. I don't know where they are, um, but I don't think Kemp has to worry. Where Kemp does have to worry is he is going to have to spend a ton of money now that he should be able to bank for the future against Stacey Abrams. Right. She's going to be able to pile up her cash while Purdue runs a largely negative campaign against Brian Kemp to try to persuade Republican voters against him. Um, it's deeply divisive at a time the Republican Party in Georgia needs unity. The party in Georgia really is in an existential crisis. We have very weak leadership in the party chairman role, uh, very divisive leadership in the legislature. The governor Kemp has been the only person to be able to unite the Republicans across Georgia. And now David Purdue is running this very weird counterintuitive campaign of, we need to be a united party, therefore you need me, not him. Uh, the only person who's successfully beaten Democrats in the last four years in Georgia is named Brian Kemp, not David Perdue.
0: Were you surprised that Perdue ultimately decided to pull the trigger on this?
1: Yeah, I actually, I really was. Um, I got wind of it about a month ago that he was really thinking about it. Uh, and then about a week before he announced, when Stacey Abrams announced, I, I knew that was kind of force's hand. And uh, that she wanted to get out there, force his hand. And sure enough, Purdue. I was shocked. It was willing to admit it that, yes, uh, Abrams coming out and in- announcing her running did force his hand. It gets him out before the legislative session, which means the Republicans will probably have a more internally divided legislative session to deprive Brian Kemp of anything to run on. Uh, and it, it just everything about this is bad politics.
0: Let me move to the Senate race. Um... Well, actually, let me, let me just ask one more question on the governor's race, because I, I think Kemp's going to win the primary myself. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with your assessment. But then I worry about Donald Trump being so incensed by having backed the wrong candidate uh, in the primary that he I mean, he's already sort of said it out loud. You know, Stacey Abrams uh, would be a better governor than Brian Kemp. And I, I worry about his reaction to how, how that primary outcome would go. Does he have the capacity to sink Brian Kemp in the fall if, if he doesn't sink him in the primary?
1: Well, I mean he he sank Purdue and Leffler in January in the runoff. Um, I mean the precise number is four hundred twenty seven thousand two hundred five. Uh, there were seven hundred thousand total people who voted in the general election who didn't vote in the runoff. 4 hundred twenty seven thousand two hundred five of those were Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't turn out mostly in North Georgia uh, in the highly Republican area. So yeah, I think he probably could. Uh, whether or not he would, I don't know. I, I think he would be smart enough and does have enough smart people around him to say, if you help Stacey Abrams get elected, uh, you're, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. Um, and so maybe he'll sit on the sidelines there. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, my sense is that Kemp in his own capacity with his own ground game has the ability to get himself reelected. A lot of people say to this day it's become orthodoxy that Donald Trump got Brian Kemp the Republican nomination in 2018. But if you actually look at the early voting in 2018, Kemp crushed the early voting 70-30. Um, he had blowout early voting across the state, even where Casey Cagle lived. Uh, Kemp was winning the early voting. David, or, um, Donald Trump did not endorse Brian Kemp. Word didn't even leak out about the endorsement until the Thursday night after early voting was done, um, there was one more day of early voting. So I think Kemp would have won the primary anyway, just based on that. Uh, and I think he can has the capacity to get himself reelected if he really works at
0: it. Yeah, a needle uh, that Trump will have to thread if he if he goes down this road of of trying to malign Kemp all year is that he does prefer Herschel Walker for the United States Senate, yeah. and so you'll have two guys on the ballot presumably in the fall, one that Trump likes and one that Trump doesn't. Uh, Let me talk to you about the Senate race and and Herschel Walker. I agree with you. I think Trump sunk the Republicans in the runoff in Georgia. Now they have Walker in the race, who a lot of the Republican consulting class was suspect of to start. But more and more, I hear people expressing interest in the race, how impressed they are with Herschel Walker and sort of renewed optimism that he's going to be a really good candidate uh, against Warnock in the fall. How do you assess Walker? Were you surprised he ran? And do you think he is the favorite To win this race in November?
1: Well, first, I I would say one of the, the things people aren't talking about is behind the scenes, Walker and Kemp are sharing some staff. So, there's clearly a coordination there. Not coordination in the official sense, but the fact that there are behind the scenes, like super PAC level, people committed to helping Kemp and Walker already. That's a good sign for both of them. I'm actually not that impressed with Walker. Uh, I, I Years ago, I took a I took, went to a campaign school for a week, and one of the guys who spoke was a consultant on the West Coast who told the tale of a candidate of his who was so terrible, they kept him in Hawaii for most of the campaign, uh, running in Washington State, and managed to win the campaign largely by making sure he never appeared on the campaign trail. Uh, that seems to be what the Walker campaign is doing here in Georgia. They're keeping him as far away uh, from people as they possibly can. He's an untested candidate. Uh, he does, frankly, have a history of mental illness, which everyone tells me, oh, you're not supposed to talk about that. Let the Democrats talk. You can't help but do that in Georgia because you know the Democrats are going to exploit that as best they can. Now, in Walker's favor, yes, he, he tried to shoot his wife, but Raphael Warnock tried to run over his wife. So <laughs> those kind of neutralize each other in Georgia. Um, true story on both counts. And it, it it becomes a problem, though, on the campaign trail When you have the heir apparent who's never been tested on the campaign trail, who does have a history of mental illness and other baggage out there that Republicans won't touch him with because he's Herschel Walker, Democrats will play for keeps. We've all seen this happen time and time again. Uh, But that being said, I'm reminded in 1982, uh, when I was just a a wee boy, uh, there were people called accidental senators. Ronald Reagan in 1980 got elected and swept into office. A group of senators who no one saw getting elected and yet they were there for six years i said 82 is 80. um and you could have in a big red wave you could have herschel walker sweep in in georgia uh just because he's got an r next to his name and there are frankly a lot of republicans looking at the biden polling in georgia thinking that that's going to happen i'm just not so sure
0: uh you, you brought up biden i wanted to move to the democrats in a minute i mean you know you obviously won georgia uh it was a close race If the presidential election were held today, I assume you agree he would get blown out in Georgia?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, 11,000, I think the margin was 11,400. Actually, the Secretary of State's office, oh, my studio lights came on. I'm supposed to be on radio all of a sudden. Um, uh, So my 11,300, 11,400 margin, the Secretary of State's office pointed out to me, I was doing a project for local law school or election law in Georgia. There were about 36,000 people in Georgia who did not vote in the presidential election. So um, you had, f- you the margin of Biden's win was smaller than the number of people who refused to vote for president. Those people I think would come out and probably vote against him.
0: Who, who would, what, what Republican in your opinion, if not Donald Trump, would make the best presidential candidate in 2024 for Georgia? I mean, I think if you look at it through the lens of, we're gonna win some states, they're gonna win some, and there's a handful in the middle. Georgia's one of them, obviously. Which one of the other people, would make the best candidate, or, or do you okay.
1: think multiple? Uh, look, I, I, I think probably anyone with an R next to their name could. Um, I, I've got to let me caveat this because I'm otherwise going to get hate mail from friends of mine saying this is not an endorsement. Ron DeSantis makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and he, he the business class of the GOP feels safe with him. Mm-hmm. The populace feels safe with him. Uh, he's the guy who's thus far been able to thread the needle between actual job performance and performative theater on the campaign stage that doesn't alienate uh, suburban voters. And he makes sense right now. Uh, the question is, is he rising too quick and is he going to peak too soon?
0: When Ted Cruz this week uh, is out making a little noise uh, saying – Almost always we nominate the person who was runner up last time. Do you do you believe that he, DeSantis and some of these other candidates that clearly want to run will run regardless of what Trump does?
1: Yeah, I, I actually think so. Um, I, I think they will. You're going to see the the battle of the donors behind the scenes. A lot of the donor class that stepped up for Trump at the last minute last time uh, are ready to move on from Trump. And uh, most of them appear to be eyeing DeSantis. Um That tells me, look, you've got Josh Hawley, Nikki Haley, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio. Uh, You'll probably have a Doug Ducey and a a few others out there who look at running in 2024. The donor class seems to be impressed with Ron DeSantis. And if there is a primary before primaries, it's that one. And he seems to be winning it.
0: Yeah. May I ask you about the Democrats right now? Joe Biden's in the toilet, obviously, and for obvious reasons, I think. are you surprised at the way he has conducted himself in office? And do you believe they have the wherewithal, the political wherewithal to change course? I used to think these guys might be smart enough to figure it out, but I'm I'm questioning <laughs> my old judgment on that.
1: Yeah, listen, I, it's the damnedest thing. Uh, I, I ask all the time now on radio, uh, how did they get so bad at this? Because they've really gotten bad at it. I yeah. mean— a, a democratic machine I've never in my lifetime, even in bad years, seen them this bad, uh, they cannot execute. And part of it, you know, it's, it's our mutual friend, Saul, Sean Southard who, who pointed this out to me, uh, that if you want to understand Biden, don't think that he's the vegetable in the basement that other people are pulling his strings. Think this is a man who's been 50 years in the Senate. Uh, where you have the chief of staff who who funnels all the opinions down to the three the chief of staff likes and presents them to to the head who says okay here are your three options I like all three of these pick and Biden is running the White House like he's running a Senate office with the chief of staff in charge uh, until Ron Klain leaves I don't think anything's going to change and to this point I I I have concluded it's Ron Klain the. Just the, the the idiocy in dealing with Joe Manchin over the last two weeks mm. has been absurd, and it's at the staff level, according to Manchin. Uh, until you have major shakeup at the staff level, nothing's going to change. Um, they, I, I really do think part of this is they've made the most fatal mistake in all of politics, which is they believe their press, that they have decided they are the guardians of democracy. Trump really is the existential threat they claim he is. And the only way to save the country is to plow through doing what the Democrats need to do, and the whole of the media should have their back, which is why they had so much outrage over the media, uh, not giving them enough favorable coverage because they believed their press the entire time. Do you think Joe Biden will run for re-election? <clears throat> no, I, I, I never have thought he would run for re-election, even when he wasn't the, not yet the nominee the last time. I assumed he would be the nominee and not run a second time. Uh, he was the only thing that could hold the Democrats together. Uh, in the last four years, and now suddenly, even he can't hold them together. The, the Democrats are rapidly heading to what the Republicans went through in 2015.
0: Let me uh, let me shift uh, to talk about the radio business uh, because um, I, I think I think you are the natural uh, heir to Rush Limbaugh, and Rush means a lot to me. I know he meant a lot to you because my first job was in radio, and I was a, a board op for the Rush Limbaugh show at a local radio station in Kentucky. And so I listened to every episode of Rush Limbaugh as a kid, and it really formed my view, my political views. I mean, this is where I sort of became. I realized what I was. I come from a long line of Democrats in my family, and I realized who I was because of Rush Limbaugh. And given, you know, he's gone now and um and there's a lot of new players on the stage you're working at a massive talk radio station in Atlanta you're growing that i was hoping you might talk a little bit about the conservative radio business where you feel like it stands where you fit into it today uh you know in the post rush era and and maybe reflect on just how important conservative talk radio was to building the republican party and the conservative movement into a
1: you know sort of a a national you know governing force sure uh you know uh, i i continue to say and and i know rush used to say this that because people in the press are obsessed with the press they cover fox uh that they they, they cover that relentlessly cover ridiculously coverage obsessively coverage fox newsmax OAN and stuff that y- there's actually conservative the noon to 3 host Typically, when Rush Limbaugh was doing it in particular, uh, Sean Hannity now, to, to a degree, and Glenn Beck, have more listeners an hour than Fox has viewers per hour. Mm-hmm. And yet, that sails over everybody's head. Everybody, what is Tucker Carlson saying? Well, actually, the guy noon to three probably has a larger audience in in the market, uh, which nobody pays attention to. It, it's still deeply influential uh, at, at the level of where background noise enters your head and starts echoing around uh, and, and settles in and, and helps shape you. I love it. Listen, I, I fell into it by accident. Totally. Uh, Rush was actually a good friend of mine. And in 2010, local guy in Macon, I was on CNN at the time. And local guy in the talk radio business in Macon, Georgia, where, where I live, a uh, small station got arrested in a crack house. He was the, the 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. host. Uh, they called me and said, hey, you're on CNN. Do you want to try your hand at radio? I said, sure, I mean, what? what the, what's the worst that could happen at 6 a.m. to 9 a.m.? And so I filled in for this guy for a day, wound up being a week. He got fired. So for three months, I was the 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. host in middle Georgia. I got paid in an expired gift certificate at Outback Steakhouse. But the president of Cox Media Group in Atlanta was driving through Macon and heard me, thought it was my show. Knew Herman Cain was running for president. They offered me Herman's shop thinking I was a radio guy. Uh, no experience in radio whatsoever. Uh, that was 2010. I started January 11th, 2011, and I'm still here and now uh, on around 20 stations nationwide. Am Russia's replacement. Now the way radio works, iHeart Premier controls most talk stations. Cumulus is number two. iHeart went with Clay Travis, Buck Sexton. Cumulus went with Dan Bongino. Odyssey's the number three station. They went with Dana Lash. So I'm kind of out here by myself self-syndicating, no syndicator, growing very slowly, hoping that some of these stations may say, "Yeah, maybe we'd like you more than someone else. Um, and the thing that I appreciate about Rush, who actually helped me build my show model, I was doing noon nine to noon until he retired and then unfortunately went the way it went, uh, is, I mean, I'm, I'm doing it myself. It's my sweat equity. I'm building relationships with the radio stations. It's hard because I don't have a big company behind me. But I love it. Um, I get to sit down from noon to three every day with no script, hardly any notes, and talk about whatever I want to talk about for three hours across the country, and and try to keep people entertained. And I that is one of the keys to radio is you're actually entertaining for a living. You're you're not trying to save the world. That was one of Rush's advice to me when I first got started is to remember your job is not to save the world. Your job is to just keep people company, and that's what I try to do.
0: How do you how do you approach? Uh... I mean, you're, you're sort of an independent operator, and uh, and you've got to run the show, but you also have to go out and make these business relationships. What, you know how how do you how do you find the time to do it? And then what is your pitch? I mean, I assume a lot of these radio guys are uh, more than willing to talk to you, but how do you go in and pitch somebody on your style of this? If if you know the easiest thing for them to do is to choose, you know, one of the. Well, one of the big, big companies.
1: So I am very blessed. Uh, not only are am I the only post rush person noon to three to hit number one across formats in a talk 10 market in the nation. Uh, I mean, so Atlanta is, I think, the number eight, number six, number eight, somewhere in their largest talk, uh, radio market. Not talk. We're talking radio in general, music and talk. Uh, and I've hit number one for about six consecutive months uh, and even when the Braves were making a play for the World Series. Uh, and in fact, my fall quarter in a non-election year ratings were higher than Russia's ratings were last year during the presidential election. So I've got a ratings pitch to make that people actually like the product. And then in every other metered market that I've been put in, I'm on delay. Uh, but my ratings are bigger than the show I replaced and bigger than the show that precedes me on the radio. So I've, I've got a, a business case to make to them. Uh, but then the other case I, I make to them is that uh, my radio listeners, I know from the data, tend to hang on and listen longer than a lot of other talk radio shows, in large part because no one ever knows what I'm going to say. I mean, hell, I don't know what I'm going to say until the moment I open my mouth. So <laughs> people have to stick around and listen. Uh, I I am probably, uh, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to anybody in radio, but a lot of people on radio want to do a bad impression of Rush. Yeah. Uh, the 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 great thing about having a relationship with Rush is that for 10 years, I picked his brain on every part of the industry, and he was always gracious. And I remember one time telling him that all I wanted to do was fill in for him. I never wanted to have a show against him or even a national show in a different time slot because I knew there was never a chance of being number one. And he told me just matter-of-factly in in just the way Rush was is – don't worry about that. You will never be as good as I am, even if I'm dead. And Just be yourself. And I, it, it was very liberating to hear him say that. And you know what? Stop trying to be Rush Limbaugh. Just be yourself. And uh, fortunately, people actually like Eric Erickson on the radio and, and not Eric Erickson doing a Rush Limbaugh impression.
0: You uh, see, you're doing your radio show, you're self-syndicating. You've also veered into writing this newsletter, which uh, I subscribe to, your Substack. How has that worked for you? I've noticed a lot of conservative voices uh, and other people veering into this space. Does it work for you? Do you find it to be worth your time to do it every day?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, about a month ago, one of the major media outlets in the country approached me and asked if I would abandon Substack and work with them, bring my subscribers over. They would pay me. Uh, and they've got a, a prominent con- contributor who is headed towards retirement. And did I want to be there and do that? And, and I, no, I'm not giving up Substack uh, to be beholden to a major media empire that it doesn't share my worldview where they could cancel me. Uh, here's the secret to my radio success. Uh, I don't have a ton of advertisers on radio. Uh, I refuse to do advertisements for companies that I don't like. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm just uh, a lot of people. The advertiser comes and says, Here's a million dollars. And they say, Take my money. And I'm like, If I can't honestly say I like your product, I don't want to be your advertiser. So what I do is my Substack subscribers help me cover the costs of my radio show, which also helps me with my advertisers where I can't be boycotted. You literally cannot financially impact my ability to do my radio show. Uh, unless you convince people to stop subscribing to my Substack. And so my Substack audience is very loyal and knows we're actually helping me do something else. And so I now I haven't earned a penny off of it. I, I don't make a salary. I get paid by my local radio show in Atlanta to do Atlanta radio. Uh, and I've poured all the money back into – I pay my producer who also helps me with affiliates. I, I pay – guy who does all my digital stuff who manages substack and social media my board op the satellite fees all of that come out of substack and there's a great feedback loop now i'm one of those people who i I write to be able to think about something and so i write my substack and it really helps me form my ideas on stuff which then helps me do good radio monologues
0: a lot of your substack writing um deals with your faith and uh and your uh, Christian beliefs and how that intersects with your political beliefs and how Christians should be uh, viewing certain issues in the world. And I admire uh, that greatly. I was curious about your views on the evangelical community right now, their place in American politics, obviously uh, closely aligned with the Republican Party. Trump put it to the test to some degree, although with a few notable exceptions, evangelicals did line up with Trump. Uh, Where do you think the evangelical movement stands now vis-a-vis the republicans are they pining uh, for for more like trump or do you think they would prefer a return to someone who more authentically reflects their values
1: you know now some people get mad at me when i say this and they think i'm saying i'm something i'm not so let, let me thread this needle carefully i think evangelical as a label in this country is now very much the way catholic and jew are used in this country and that is as a ethnic identifier not as a religious identifier. There are a lot of people who call themselves Catholic or Jewish who they never go into church or synagogue. Um, It's just they are ethnically considered Catholic or Jew. There are a lot of people who are in their bass boats on Sunday morning who never set foot in a church who are considered evangelical because they're white, Southern, have some vague cultural belief in Jesus Christ. Um, Church committed evangelicals are definitely went further to Trump than I expected them to in 2016. Uh, I do think there's a bit of a falling away there in the actual regular goes to church evangelical, which is different from the cultural evangelical. Uh, They're also smaller in number than the cultural evangelicals. And there's going to have to be some real soul searching there. Uh, I am I'm kind of perturbed when we get into the whole performance culture stuff the number of young pastors who engage in cultural performance on social media, and they're not tending to their flocks, they somehow view their Twitter followers as their flock, uh, which I think is very soul corrupting. I think Twitter as a platform is soul corrupting. Uh, And the more time I see young pastors spend on Twitter who don't have congregations, um, who don't have local um, flocks, the worse I think uh, they, twist their religion towards their politics. And the one thing that that I think probably saved me from being a really terrible human being is uh, a number of years into radio, I kept getting, because I talk about this stuff on radio too, not just in Substack, got invited to start preaching and I'd never been to seminary. And I finally decided, you know, I should probably go to seminary if these churches want me to preach. And it was deeply rewarding. And I finally, it's like the light bulb came on, you know, I'm steering my faith towards my politics and it's got to go the other direction. And that's caused me to fall out with friends of mine who are like, no, well, I'm a Christian and I believe this. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, here's what scripture actually says that, you know, take care of the widows, the orphans, the refugees. And, and maybe we do need to rethink our language, at least on how we deal with the border, even if we all believe in a secure border, things like that. Uh, and I think when you go down the road of, of being on Twitter all the time as an evangelical – Don't be surprised when your religion starts sounding like your politics.
0: I want to ask about one more thing before we do our lightning round, and that is the issue of vaccines in this country. I was curious about your views on where you think we stand with with vaccines. Obviously, uh, there have been conservatives out there who – uh, or vaccine hesitant or say we don't need these vaccines or who want to destabilize the concept that vaccines are effective. And even this week, Donald Trump seemed to embrace the idea that his vaccines were, were uh, effective and people should take them. What are you hearing from your listeners on this front? Because I, I find a mixed bag out there. And, and, uh, and, and I, I'm just curious, you, you have such a relationship yeah. with your listeners. What are they telling you and, and what are you telling them?
1: Uh, you know, I tell them all the time, I think the vaccine works. Um, my, my wife and I are proof of it. We got it very early on. My wife's got lung cancer. She was, was one of the very first people to get it. Uh, and at the same time, my kids wound up getting COVID and neither Christian nor I got it. Uh, over the summer, my dad got the Delta variant. We were in a hotel room together in Atlanta for a few days and he was clearly getting sick. Didn't realize he had COVID until he got home. Uh, but I was with him for three days and never got sick. Uh, my mom nursed him back to health, never got sick. The vaccines, they work. They're not perfect, but they work. I'm deeply alarmed at the people in the conservative movement who have embraced a level of vaccine skepticism uh, and vaccine hesitancy and are willing to twist the data. They don't understand the data. They don't understand that they don't understand the data. Uh, that's bad, I think. At the same time, I also think the left, and in particular the Democrats, once they got in charge, oversold the vaccine more than they ever should have. Uh, they, they they overinflated it, and now they don't know what to do with it. Uh, I, I tell people, get the vaccine, you shouldn't be mandated. I'm, I'm philosophically opposed to mandates, but I do think they work. Uh, I, I have this ongoing conversation with my listeners that the way I explain what's going on in COVID policy is we were promised for a year from Dr. Fauci to President Trump to President Biden, we were fundamentally promised we would get to COVID zero. We're never going to get to COVID zero. It's increasingly obvious we're never going to get there. They have not yet figured out how do we announce to the passengers on this airplane that I'm very sorry, we can't land you at this destination. We have to go to this different airport now. And until they figure out how to explain to people that we promised you the science would be settled and the science would take care of us and the science would prevent it and those vaccines would work and we'd get rid of this disease and now we failed – until they figure out how to be humble enough to admit they screwed it up all along and oversold it, we're never going to get rid of the COVID policies. It's never been about controlling us. It's been about their inability to acknowledge they failed.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you that we're never going to get to COVID zero. And I actually think if Biden were just honest about it and said, you know what, we're just going to have to learn to live with it, well over half the country would say, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I agree with you. you. Intellectually, I get it. I understand. And if my kid can go to school and not be constantly interrupted, I'm happy with that. I think they would I mean, find tons in of room to
1: run. Colorado is the perfect example of this, that, that at this point, you have either had the vaccine or you didn't want to get it. Let's move on. No more masks. Everything's open.
0: Yeah, except now, though, we see Joe Biden, as you pointed out, he can't he just can't find it. He was in Kentucky surveying tornado damage the other day. He's, he's literally outside the entire time you know, ambling around, uh, my hometown of Dawson Springs and these people are sitting amid piles of rubble and he's walking around outside with his mask on, you know, and he's the only guy yeah. there doing it. And at some juncture, uh, they're going to have to do it now to his credit. He is resistant right now, the idea of lockdowns. And I assume that's because, uh, they know what political peril or they would be in if they, <laughs> if they promoted it, you're listening to Flyover country with Scott Jennings, Eric Erickson is our guest this week. Uh, before we do the lightning round, Eric, um, uh, one one final thing, uh, Senator Johnny Isaacson passed away. Um, I know you were close uh, with him, and you went way back with him. And I was hoping you might, before we do the lightning round, close this out. Why was he so well liked? I mean, he was liked in Georgia. He was trusted by people. He was liked in the Senate. Maybe offer some reflections on Senator Isaacson for us.
1: You know, the, the Georgia Republican Party wouldn't exist except for Paul Coverdale and Johnny Isaacson, uh, both of whom were fairly moderate suburban Republicans, uh, who built a party that they knew was to the right of them. Culturally and philosophically, they they fundamentally, Johnny Isaacson made no bones about it. Uh, he knew I was to the right of him and would needle me and, and let me needle him all the time on, on our differences in politics. But at the same time, contrary to this view in politics t- today, they were both very nice men. Uh, Johnny Isaacson. Uh, built bridges across the state. He didn't care about politics. Johnny Isidson's big issue, actually, people don't understand, was education. Mm. Uh, From the state school board days to his time in in the state legislature in Georgia, he cared passionately about education, public and private education. And he didn't care whether you were a Democrat or a Republican. He understood you wanted the best education for your kid. And he could talk to people and relate to people in ways a lot of politicians don't want to. He, he looked at a voter and said, I might be able to get this person's vote, but at the end of the day, I might also be able to get a friend out of this. And he talked to people in a way that connected to them. He was just a profoundly nice person. He he never saw anyone that he vehemently didn't like. Uh, there were a couple of people he wound up growing to despise over time, but overwhelmingly he was, I mean, he was just a, the, the consummate politician in that he understood that that people have issues that they care about that he may not know about, and he wanted to know about people so he could know about what got them to go vote and what got them through life.
0: This may be one of the, the most interesting things the Republican Party goes through over the next couple of years, the prospect of being nice or being not nice uh, when it comes to dealing with our – political opponents. Donald Trump was not a nice person, obviously, and that was his brand. Nikki Haley has said that uh, the problem with Republicans these days, they were just too nice. We're just not willing to be mean enough. And this was after Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden. There may be some lessons in the Isaacson model of just trying to be a little bit, little bit nicer uh, uh, as you go out and talk to people out there. Eric, thanks uh, for being on the show. You've been a wonderful guest. Now we'll do the lightning round. And I want to say a short answer or one answer. Number one, what is your favorite movie of all time? Patton, hands down. down. Love it. Is Georgia a flyover country state geographically or politically? No, no, it's not. One year into Joe Biden's presidency. What is one good thing you can say about it?
1: We've only got three left.
0: (laughs) You grew up in Dubai. Uh, What is the biggest similarity between Dubai and Georgia? The heat. heat. All right. Is there a candidate or a possible candidate for president alive today that if he or she ran, you would immediately drop your media empire for and run off and work for their campaign? No. Will Republicans win the House and Senate in 2022?
1: Actually, yes. I think they will, will both of them. Will
0: Republicans capture the White House in 24? I think so. What do you enjoy most? Cable TV, print? Or a radio?
1: Oh, cable TV.
0: If you could wave a wand and change one thing about U.S. politics, what would it be?
1: Uh, that social media would be gone and also we would never know it existed. <laughs> Finally,
0: will the Atlanta Braves repeat in 2022?
1: Oh, <laughs> Okay. I won't drop an F-bomb. No, no. Where's Freddie? I I need Freddie first.
0: (laughs) Eric Erickson. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You can listen to Eric Erickson on 20 radio stations around the country. The flagship is in Atlanta, 750. 750. WSB. Uh, You can read his substack, uh, .substack EWerickson.substack.com. I do. I highly recommend it. Uh, And follow him on Twitter. As well, Eric, thanks for being with us. You've been a great guest. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com, and you can also find me at scottjenningsky on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat
1: backs and folding trays are in their full, upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing, and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.